minds you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Well, it's been another interesting week, hasn't it? And uh, I suppose we do have to start with the uh, latest news about uh, the president of the U.S. being uh, diagnosed with COVID-19 and being in, in hospital. So we will do that. Uh, I'm Joe Schwartz. I direct McGill University's Office for Science and Society. And uh, we hope to separate sense from nonsense. And uh, as you well know, there's a lot of nonsense that is out there today, uh, which needs to be uh, filtered out. Well, let's start filtering some stuff uh, about the uh, uh, president being in, um, in hospital. Uh, of course, there are all kinds of theories already about, you know, what we're being told that is true and what is not true, etc. And uh, basically, this White House has not been uh, very good at revealing accurate information. But, uh, I mean, there are certain things, of course, that we do know. We do know the treatments that the president is receiving, and there have been uh, questions asked uh, about that. So let me uh, try to uh, elucidate uh, uh, some of those. Uh, he was given uh, what is a very experimental treatment with uh, monoclonal antibodies, it isn't exactly clear to me what this specific treatment is uh, because uh, the company that manufactures the uh, these antibodies uh, uh, on their website does not discuss in great detail exactly you know what is involved but I think I can make a pretty good guess based on what we know about uh, the development of monoclonal antibody therapies. An antibody, of course, is a protein that is generated in the body in response to an antigen. An antigen is a foreign material that the body perceives to be potentially harmful. Uh, it can be anything uh, ranging from pollen that is uh, released by uh, ragweed to some sort of toxin, uh, such as the protein on the surface of the coronavirus, which, of course, the body perceives to be a foreign intruder. And in response to this, it will generate uh, antibodies. These are cranked out by specific white blood cells that will recognize the intruder on next meeting and attempt to neutralize it. There are many, many different antibodies that are produced in the human system. Of course, in this case, what is of interest are antibodies that are specific to the SARS-CoV-2 uh, virus. So what would be involved in generating laboratory uh, antibodies would be to inject an animal, usually a mouse or a rodent, uh, or uh, in some case a, a hamster, inject them with the material that the body is designed to make an antibody to. So in this case, it would be uh, the protein on the surface of uh, of the coronavirus, these so-called spike proteins. So I suspect what was done here is that these spike proteins were isolated and injected into the test animal. And these test animals, uh, mostly uh, mice that have uh, an immunological system very much like, like humans, would then start producing antibodies to that protein. And uh, an extract would be made probably of the spleen of the animal and uh, from this, a uh, variety of antibodies would be isolated. And the ones that seem to be specific for the uh, 
virus would be cloned, that is, they would be made to multiply and uh, formulated into um, some sort of injectable or intravenous uh, remedy. And intravenous is, is I, I think, how the president was administered uh, this. So it means, uh, you know, having a tube uh, over a period of time with this uh, stuff flowing into you. It's very interesting technology, but it is uh, so far not widely tested. There's only one study that uh, the company has of about 250 uh, subjects. And the early results are intriguing, but uh, they are not totally seductive. They do show that in, in people, especially people who have uh, uh, somewhat poor functioning immune systems, that it is of, um, of benefit. But we need to see more studies double-blind, randomized trials. Of course, uh, in, in this case, they are pulling out all stops because, of course, they are dealing with the president of the U.S. And uh, the doctors in charge have deemed it uh, uh, appropriate to introduce this therapy, uh, along with other more standard uh, treatments. Um, he is, uh, of course, getting uh, the uh, antiviral drug that uh, is, is very widely used today. And uh, usually it's used, uh, uh, used later in the disease, but uh, this time the antiviral is, uh, is used early, hoping for uh, a better uh, outcome. And um, also uh, Pepsid, which, has, which is an ulcer drug, but it, there have been some preliminary studies showing that it can reduce the replication of the, of the virus, uh, as remdesivir does, which is the antiviral drug that they are, are, are using. Uh, there is some evidence that melatonin, which the president is taking, may also be uh, beneficial. And I understand he's also taking zinc. The evidence for zinc is not overwhelming, but zinc, of course, does play a role in the immune system, so it does make uh, make sense. And uh, he's also been given dexamethasone, which is a steroid that has anti-inflammatory properties because, of course, much of the... Uh, disturbing reaction to this virus is overactivity by the immune system. And it is this overactivity, which has been called a cytokine storm, uh, that causes a lot of the problems. So they are really using all the tools that are appropriate, uh, not hydroxychloroquine, because there is no significant evidence uh, for that. And uh, the outcome so far, of course, uh, is not clear. Uh, we don't even know exactly what has been happening. I mean, the president at one time had fever, but it's not clear whether or not uh, when that fever subsided, which it did, was because they were using some uh, medication such as uh, Tylenol or, or aspirin in order to uh, reduce the temperature. Uh, he is, by the way, also taking a small dose of aspirin because uh, we know that one of the consequences of infection with this virus is uh, uh, micro, um, uh, microscopic blood clots, and that can cause problems all over uh, the body. Uh, the uh, situation seems to be pretty good. He seems to be in, in good spirits, and he looked pretty good in the video. 
But with this disease, it is usually between days five and seven that complications set in. So we'll have to wait to see what is uh, is going on. This seems to be the uh, the latest. They haven't released any information about uh, lung imaging, but uh, uh, you know whether or not uh, any trace of pneumonia. So they're not forthcoming with uh, all of the information. The other question that uh, I was asked. Uh, was about the doctor's physician, because people have noted that on his uh, white coat, it does not say MD, it says DO, DO. Uh, that stands for Doctor of Osteopathy. And I had a couple of people ask me about this, about whether or not osteopaths are actually legitimate doctors. Well, yes, in the US they are, in Canada they are not. There's a big difference between an osteopath in Canada and an osteopath in the U.S. In the U.S., osteopaths graduate uh, from a school of osteopathy, where they do certainly learn medicine, but the medicine is slanted towards uh, uh, physical manipulation. But they do get an education, and after their four years of osteopathy, osteopathy school, they go into the same match for residency as any other graduate of, of any medical school. And uh, they can then go into any kind of uh, specialty. They can go into surgery. They can go into internal uh, medicine. And by the time that they finish their surgery, their education should be the same as of any other physician. The only um, uh, difference really is that uh, schools of osteopathy are much easier to get into than medical schools. So I think that uh, the requirements being less, the quality of the uh, student who gets into a school of osteopathy is somewhat lower because generally these are students who have not gotten into regular med schools. In Canada, uh, osteopaths are not physicians. Uh, they just take courses in osteopathy and they do manipulations, uh, but they do not have any deep uh, medical knowledge. So it's a big difference. All right. Well, uh, we've tried to clear up some of that. Let me leave you with a question to answer. You can start searching this during the break that we're just going to take. Why are researchers interested in epibatidine? the extremely toxic compound that is secreted by the Equatorian tree frog. So why is there interest in this? You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. We're going to take a few minutes here, check for traffic, and we'll be right back. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Our number here is 514-790-0800 for your questions about anything that seems to be related to science. You can also text to 514-800. And I've got a question for you guys. Why are researchers interested in epibatidine, which is this extremely toxic compound that is secreted by the Ecuadorian tree frog? If you know the answers to that, you give us a call at 514-790-0800. <clears throat> It's a lot of fun to search for flubs in movies, isn't it? <laughs> and uh, uh, previously, keen eyes have alerted us to a Roman soldier wearing a watch in Spartacus. Then there was that scene where a gas cylinder was visible in an overturned uh, chariot in Gladiator. Uh, Braveheart has a scene in it where there's a car in the background. And Pulp Fiction, great movie. There are bullet holes present in the wall before shots are fired. 
And in Game of Thrones, there was a big uh, controversy about that coffee cup that made an appearance in one scene. Well, more recently, in an episode of the hit science fiction series Stranger Things on Netflix, which is set in the early 1980s, uh, one of the young heroes, Mike Wheeler, pours out some M&Ms and there's a red candy very clearly visible. There's a problem with that scene. What's the problem? That there were no red M&Ms at that time the color having been eliminated by the Mars and Murray Company in 1976. That was in response to the Food and Drug Administration having banned the use of red dye number two, also known as amaranth, as a result of safety concerns that had been raised. Now here's an interesting feature. M&Ms have never used this dye. But there was such massive publicity given to, to the banning of this red dye number two that the company decided that they would uh, be better off just getting rid of the red candy altogether uh, so that there would be no confusion about whether or not they were using the, the band dye. So they decided, forget this, uh, what, what's the difference? Whether or not we have the red in there, we'll just replace it with an orange color. And uh, that is exactly what they did. Well, when the red dye number two was banned in 1976, uh, that was controversial. Why? Well, this dye was, was not new. I mean, it had been long used. It had been used since the passage of the Pure Food and Drug Act in 1906. And at that time, the uh, uh, U.S. Uh, Department of Agriculture, Department of Chemistry and Agriculture, which was sort of the forerunner of the FDA, had examined about 700 synthetic colors that were in use at that time. And they reduced the allow allowable ones to seven. And that included red dye number two. So it was widely used from 1906 to 1976. And no concerns had been raised until the early 1970s when a couple of Soviet studies claimed that the dye caused cancer and reproductive problems in rodents. Well, the U.S. at the time was very suspicious of any information that emerged from the Soviet Union because American scientists said, gee, you know, what do the Soviets know about red? And they were quick to criticize the studies for poor methodology. Nevertheless, the FDA decided to carry out its own studies, uh, but the results of those were very murky. Most found no problem at all. But a few did show some toxic effects, although at unrealistically high doses. That was in test animals. But anyway, given that other red dyes were available and that some studies had raised the red flag about red dye number two, the FDA decided to ban it. The industry mostly switched to red number 40, also called Allura Red, which curiously was at that time already banned in many European countries. This is as characteristic of a lot of the stuff that we know about these food dyes, is that the studies are, are all over the place. And uh, you can find a study to, to, ban, to back up whatever you, uh, you may have. Anyway, uh, this certainly was not the first time that food dyes had become uh, mired in controversy. Until the late 19th century, 
there were essentially no regulations governing food adulteration. Oh, yeah, there were some sporadic regulations, such as one in Germany about beer purity. There was a law introduced in 1516 by Duke Wilhelm IV of Bavaria, uh, decreeing that nothing other than hops, barley, and water could be used to make beer. The first law that concerned food colorant seems to be one passed in Germany in 1531, and that was a pretty harsh law. Anyone caught counterfeiting saffron, which at the time was used as a yellow dye, uh, was to be burned. By the late 1800s, both Germany and England had passed regulations against the use of red lead oxide and red mercury sulfide to color confectionery, and also green copper arsenite, which at that time was used to color pickles and, believe it or not, to recolor used tea leaves so that they could be resold as uh, fresh tea leaves. Uh, those were all mineral dyes that had been long uh, around. Actually, they should be called pigments, not dyes. But synthetic dyes were introduced after William Henry Perkins' accident the discovery of Movine in 1856, uh, and these were the so-called coal tar dyes because the starting materials from which they were synthesized were isolated from the residue left behind when you burned coal. And these proliferated widely until the U.S. focused attention on them with that Pure Food and Drug Act that I mentioned back in 1906. And then uh, food dyes flew pretty well under the radar until 1950. Well, children across the U.S. came down with diarrhea and rashes after eating candy and popcorn uh, tinted by the FDA-approved orange dye number one, one of the seven colors that had been approved in 1906. Well, this prompted the FDA to launch an investigation and found that manufacturers were using huge amounts of the dye, doses that approached ones that caused severe toxic reactions in rodents. So in 1956, orange number one was removed from the market. Again, things were quiet until those Soviet studies shook the U.S. and uh, spawned the furor that resulted in the ban of red dye number two and the elimination of the red M&Ms. All right. Well, the story does continue. We'll get back to it in, in a few minutes uh, because, as you probably know, the red dyes did eventually re-emerge. So we'll uh, tell you that part of the story. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We're going to check for news. And after that, we'll be back. And let me again repeat the question. Why are researchers interested in epibatidine, the extremely toxic compound that is secreted by the Equatorian tree frog? You know the answer. You call us at 514-790-800. You can also text your questions and comments to 514-800. We'll be right back. Life's everyday mystery solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. I see my uh, epibatidine question is causing some problems. I don't understand why. Uh, should be able to come up with an answer for that. But let me also give you a second question. Uh, why can you not use iron nails in oak barrels? If you're making a barrel made of oak, why can you not use iron nails in that? Give us a call, 514-790-0800. So let me just finish up my... Uh, a story about the red M&Ms. And uh, finally, in 1987, they made a return. Triumphant one. 
thanks to the antics of Paul Hithman, uh, who then was a student at the University of Tennessee. And this was more or less a joke. But in 1982, he founded the Society for the Restoration and Preservation of Red M&Ms. And members were urged to bombard Mars and Murray, which of course is the company that makes M&Ms, with letters. And uh, eventually the company relented and reintroduced red candies, this time dyed with red dye number 40, which was a dye already not allowed in Europe. Uh, there the candies are dyed with, um, uh, they were dyed with carmine, extracted from the crushed bodies of female cochineal bugs. Uh, but that caused some controversy too, so they have recently uh, replaced it uh, with, uh, uh, I think, uh, uh, extract of cabbage juice. Anyway, while it is extremely unlikely that red number 40 in M&Ms presents any risk for humans, uh, the same may not be true for hummingbirds. Uh, these fascinating little creatures are known to be attracted to red colors, and uh, that explains why hummingbird feeders are colored red, and why companies sell nectar that is used in these feeders to attract the birds, and the nectar is colored red, usually with red dye number 40. And this has uh, caused an explosion of discussions on the internet, with uh, the sellers of the nectar offering rewards to anyone who can provide a reference to any study that documents harm. And the hummingbird lovers in turn point out that while there may not be any proper studies, the doses the birds ingest per body weight are much greater than what causes toxicity in rodents. In any case, what is clear is that a red feeder attracts the birds and there's no evidence that providing red nectar increases the attraction. Oh, it would be interesting, wouldn't it, to run an experiment to see if hummingbirds peck more at red M&Ms uh, than they do at uh, other colors. There's a study waiting to be done. I also had a, a, a question texted in about whether or not the Smarties uh, slogan that they had for a while, do you eat the red ones last, uh, was triggered by the withdrawal of red M&Ms. And I, I think that it was. Uh, you know, there had been all kinds of rumors going around about why the red M&Ms had been uh, withdrawn. And one of those was that the red candies were actually aphrodisiacs and the workers were stealing the red ones off the uh, assembly line. Well, of course, that's not true. We all know that it's the green ones that are aphrodisiacs. Anyway, I think Smarties uh, did capitalize on this idea, and they came up with uh, this idea of do you eat the red ones last, kind of uh, you know insinuating that there was something special about the red ones. Well, there isn't, except for uh, for the uh, color. So anyway, interesting story about uh, M&Ms. And uh, so another interesting facet about uh, these candies and that they were very popular during the Second World War. They were issued to soldiers who were fighting in um, areas where the temperature was very warm, such as in, in Africa. And uh, chocolates would often be given in their rations, but the chocolates would melt. So the U.S. wanted to find some way to make the chocolates melt in the mouth and not in the hand. And uh, out of that research came the uh, M&Ms. And they have been popular uh, ever since uh, that time. 
Okay. Let me uh, see if anyone has come up with uh, an answer to uh, my uh, question. Uh, let me see whether or not... Uh, uh, George? Do we have George Hello. on the line? George. Hi there. Yes. Yes, George, you've got a bit of an echo. Sorry about that. No, I'm calling about the iron the iron nail and the oak barrel. Okay. Is it because the the reaction between the iron and the oak barrel will stain the wood? It certainly will. Uh, this is what you're really making between iron and gallic acid, which is found in, in the wood, is iron gallate, uh, which is the basis of ink. And uh, throughout history, uh, ink has been made uh, by reacting mostly iron sulfate with the, the gallic acid that is extracted from these uh, little growths on oak trees. Uh, those growths occur because certain insects lay their eggs inside of the oak tree, and the oak tree defends itself by encapsulating them. But there's a chemical in there called gallic acid, which reacts with iron and forms this dark blue uh, iron gallate. So, yes, you are right about with, that. With regard to your uh, poison tree frog, is the research concerning um, uh, the, the the toxicity would, would block a certain neuro thing with regard to nicotine no it it isn't that it isn't that i mean there there are nicotine receptors that would be activated but the 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 um the thrust is not anything to do with with that there's a, a thank you a medical possibility okay uh let's see maybe sonia has an answer to that sonia yeah hello hello Hi. i believe that every plant uh, has a defense mechanism and? Now, uh, I uh, this year I, I put a bunch of copper pennies because they're no longer in circulation. I put them around my apple tree. Some people, oh, there's a plane going by. Hello, sorry. Some people said I'm go I'm going to kill my apple tree, and I disagreed. I heard that you could put rusty nails around your apple tree to prevent worms from going into your apples. However, I used a copper penny. And I had no worms in my apples. And this is, this has what to do with my question? Well, it was the oak uh, oak tree question actually? Yeah. Um, every tree has a serum. Like uh, you can you cannot mix the certain certain metals with a tree because they will defend. They will, they have a defense. Then, uh, well, no, that's not the answer. We just had the answer before. Yes, I know you just yeah, did. Yeah, yeah. But I'm just saying but, that. But you're uh, quite right that, that uh, oh. I mean, there is some defense mechanism involved there because uh, those uh, galls on the on the oak tree are produced because the tree is trying to defend itself from insects. So that, this, that much this is, is true. This okay. is true. And the same with the walnut tree. Mm -hmm. It's yes. very hard to grow anything underneath a walnut tree. Right. Very good. Okay, that's a good observation. Okay, thanks for thanks for that. Uh, let me see what John is all about. Hey, John. Yeah, hi, Dr. Joe. What's up? Uh, what's up? I'd like to know, whatever happened to the mad cow disease, how did they get rid of it, and were humans affected by it? Because oh, certainly I remember some humans, a time certainly. they said, don't eat meat. Certainly some humans were affected, uh, but uh, we no longer have to worry about... Uh, 
uh, mad cow because the cause was discovered and it was in the the feed that the cows were uh, being given, uh, which uh, uh, some of that feed uh, was taken from uh, animals. And uh, uh, so this, this is no longer an issue and we haven't had uh, mad cow problems for uh, over a decade. So although there may be some concerns about eating meat, uh, mad cow disease is, is no longer among them. Okay, you're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. We will check traffic once more and be right back. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Somebody wanted to know what percentage of physicians in the U.S. uh, actually come from uh, uh, osteopathy, that is, graduated from a school of osteopathy. And uh, of the practicing physicians, it's about 8.5% in the U.S. who come from uh, uh, osteopathy background. But what is interesting is that of all the students in all U.S. uh, medical schools combined, combined together with schools of osteopathy, uh, the uh, osteopathy students make up about 25%, uh, which means that there are a lot of those students who never make it into practicing uh, medicine, uh, which uh, uh, kind of dovetails with what I told you before, is that it is much easier to get into uh, schools of osteopathy, and uh, the students that graduate from there tend to be less successful at getting proper residencies that would be the inroad into um, uh, medical specialties. And uh, their uh, average GPA uh, to get into their schools is significantly lower than that for uh, the students who get into uh, regular medical school. Okay. Uh, Anyway, it seems that uh, no one has been able to come up with the answer to the epibatidine question. But nevertheless, I will regale you with the answer because I think that it is interesting. When someone is in pain, Every other concern fades into the background, doesn't it? The sole focus becomes alleviating the suffering. That's why pain-relieving medications are so prized. Unfortunately, the most potent ones, the opiates, come with baggage. Their side effects can include confusion, constipation, and depression of respiration. Then, of course, there is the potential of addiction. So any hint of a discovery of a non-opiate painkiller causes excitement in the pharmaceutical community. It was back in 1974 that National Institutes of Health researcher John Daly took an interest in the toxin secreted by the small Ecuadorian tree frog, Epidobades tricolor. Natives were known to tip their arrows and uh, poison darts with uh, a compound that was secreted by the frogs. They would just rub the arrow or the dart on the back of the frog. Poison dart frogs, as they have come to be known, synthesize potent toxins from components in their diet, possibly insects, uh, and of course they do this to protect themselves from predators. A single lick is enough to teach a predator a very bitter lesson. Well, Daly wondered what sort of compounds produced and whether they might have some use in medicine. He managed to isolate one specific compound, christened it epibatidine, and discovered in tiny doses it was a very effective painkiller. In fact, in mice, it was 200 times more potent than morphine. How are such numbers arrived at? 
Well, such determinations are not as difficult as one might think. Mice, for example, flick their tail in a specific fashion when treated with opiates. This is known as the Straub tail response. The tail flicking activity is determined by the uh, dose of the opiate that is administered. So if the same type of activity is seen in response to a dose of a test drug, that is one two hundredth of a dose of morphine, uh, then the drug is said to be 200 times more active. Another thing is perhaps more disturbing. Mice are put on a hot plate and the time it takes for them to jump off is measured. An effective painkiller will lengthen the time. Epibatidine was shown by such tests to be more potent than morphine, but what caused further excitement was that the painkilling effect persisted in the presence of naloxone, an opiate antagonist. This suggested that epibatidine was not an opiate and that therefore it might not have an addictive potential. But Daly's research was hampered by restrictions on the collection of the frogs which were deemed hatred. It wasn't until the 1990s that nuclear magnetic resonance technology, that's NMR, had developed to the extent that the molecular structure of epibatidine could be determined from the tiny amounts of the compound Daly had collected. Indeed, epibatabine turned out to be not an opiate. Rather, its molecular structure resembled that of nicotine. It was also one of the rare naturally occurring organic compounds that contained chlorine in its structure. Epibatadine's painkilling activity was related to its ability to activate what are known as nicotinic acetylcholine receptors, or these are found on nerve cells. Unfortunately, epibatidine in slightly higher doses also activates muscarinic acetylcholine receptors, and that can cause paralysis and death. So once epibatidine's structure had been determined, chemists went to work on devising synthetic roots uh, to see if they could make this compound on a larger scale. No longer was there any need to disturb the endangered tree frogs. Also, the initial hope for epibatidine becoming a non-addictive painkiller quickly faded. The compound was just too toxic. Indeed, it turned out to be more toxic than nioxin, commonly regarded as the most toxic synthetic compound encountered. The therapeutic dose of epipatidine was just too close to the toxic dose for comfort. Although it was a terrific painkiller, it was too likely to kill the patient. But not all hope is lost. It's common practice Pharmaceutical chemists have synthesized a number of molecules closely related to epibatidine with hopes of finding one with a better safety profile. And uh, something may yet uh, dart out of that research. We'll just have to wait and see. Uh, obviously, it's very common to try to uh, find natural substances that have effects on the human body. Let me go to Brian, who's been patiently waiting online. Brian. Yeah, hi, Dr. Joe. Hi. Thanks for taking the call. Um, there's a business out there that specializes in spraying buildings to try to keep them safe from the virus. And um, I instinctively feel or think that uh, the compound that's antiviral must be fairly volatile. I'm just wondering, I, I wish I had a chemical name to give you, but I'm wondering if uh, if you have a comment on how long the antiviral property of well first of all i don't to... think there is this is a, this is a, a big reason for the spread of the virus uh, buildings are not i mean no one goes around uh, you know biting into bricks or licking pavement and uh, the uh, uh, spraying of streets 
as was initiated in China uh, is no longer done because it was shown to be totally ineffective. But there were two substances that would, they would uh, spray with. One was uh, hydrogen peroxide and the other one was calcium hypochlorite. Both of these will kill the virus on contact. But this is not an issue. It's not an issue because, uh, you know, any virus that is found outside on, on uh, pavement or on buildings would be in small, small doses. And it would take a, a very bizarre uh, mechanism by which that would infect people. So this is no longer done anyway. And uh, I'm surprised that there's still companies that are promoting this because uh, uh, the World Health Organization has discarded this notion. Okay, well, anyway, thanks for bringing that up. And unfortunately, we have once again run smack out of time. And uh, this next week promises to be as interesting as the past week was. So we'll see what happens. I suspect that we will have uh, new developments in the uh, spread of the virus and what happens to the President of the United States. And we will certainly discuss that next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz. And uh, we'll meet again, uh, same time, same station next week. I hope that all of the chemistry in your life comes out just right. <laughs>